Good morning, everybody. Hope you're doing well. This is Pastor David. Just excited to be with you today. Uh, another day where you're, hopefully your body, your soul, your spirit can rest on this Sabbath and the Father can, uh, by His Holy Spirit, just give you some refreshment. That's our prayer for you. Uh, we're excited to be with you. And before we jump into the Word, want to let you know about a couple things that are going on right now. Number one, uh, two weeks ago, we released our first single uh, for the al worship album that we recorded with our uh, worship ministry called Tribes and Tongues Collective. It's called Psalm 107, and we're using that to raise money for Pastor Alex. Many of you have probably seen that on YouTube, but we've just released it on iTunes and Spotify and some other sources like that where you can go and actually purchase it and through that, you can also get the download. And so we want to encourage you that as you do that, your monies are going to help Zambia Messianic Fellowship, which is uh, the ministry and churches in Zambia that we partner with. And our funds, as we raise it, are going to help feed orphans that are there, uh, help uh, kids uh, be able to continue in day school, uh, help Pastor Alex and Faye, and as we're raising money for that, we need to know they're hit particularly hard by the coronavirus and all that's happening all over the world with economic shutdown. So I would encourage you to consider not only a donation, but purchasing that. We are praying to raise $5,000 for Zambia Messianic Fellowship. So if you want to be part of that, we would love for you to do that. Okay, the second thing that you need to know is We've been counting for 49 days, counting the days leading up to the celebration of Shavuot or Pentecost, and tomorrow is the day. We're going to be at the band shell at Kleiner Park at 5 p.m. in the evening. Uh, we're going to have worship. We're going to have some time in the Word, and then we're going to offer people an opportunity to receive prayer. It's going to be an awesome day. We were there Thursday night preparing, rehearsing, had a number of people come out and pray and just sort of canvas the park. There's a lot of momentum and expectation in the air. The atmosphere right now of our culture is ripe for alternatives and answers for what God wants to do in people's lives. I want to encourage you not only to be there, but to bring family and friends that you know are needing a word from the Lord and an encounter with Jesus. It's a bring your own picnic so make sure that you uh, bring your own food. We will be practicing social distancing as much as it's possible when the people of God get together. And we hopefully will see you tomorrow, 5 o'clock at Kleiner Park. Okay, so let's jump into the Word. Turn in your Bibles to John, excuse me, to uh, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. We've been doing a series on the Holy Spirit and what we pray for as we're counting the days where we've been defining what exactly do we anticipate from the person of the Holy Spirit as we're counting the days leading up to Pentecost. The Holy Spirit is the person who dwells in us to make us a new kind of person and together a new kind of people. And God has something he wants to reveal to us in this season. And we pray and believe God 
will do something. What exactly will he do? And we saw at the very beginning of this series that God wants to reveal his presence to us. He wants to impart his purpose to us. He wants to give us power. And today we're going to be talking about the promise of the Holy Spirit. Exactly what is it that we're praying for? What is it that God has promised to us that we can anticipate in this season? Now, in Genesis chapter 3, we're going to look there in just a moment, but I, I, I want to begin by putting this in context. The promises of God are made to a broken world. They're not made to a whole world. They're made to a broken world. And if you've been paying attention to anything for the last few months, but especially in the last week, our country is literally unraveling before our eyes. Just last night, the mayor of Portland put the entire city on lockdown, not because of coronavirus. They actually created a form of martial law where the people of Portland can't leave their homes after 8 o'clock at night until 6 o'clock in the morning. On the heels of coronavirus, because of riots that are going on, as a result of this man who was killed in Minneapolis through the tragic and horrible uh, behavior of the police. And for decades, literally, we've been wrestling with this race problem in America, which happens to erupt in the middle of an economic crisis and in the middle of a crisis of health and fear that's going around because of coronavirus. We literally have a perfect storm converging on our culture. And the problem that we're facing here is that if, if you live in Idaho and you live in the Treasure Valley, our life is going on pretty much like normal in many regards. You go to the park, people are out walking around, walking their dogs, saying hi to each other. People are starting to get back to work. There's more cars on the road. One of the challenges we face here in 26.8 in this valley is the fact that though we have felt it, we have felt very little. And when we watch the news, we're watching all these horrible things happening all over the world or in Portland or in Minneapolis. And we watch the TV almost as if it's a cinematic production. We look and we say, oh, that's horrible. And then we go to Starbucks and buy our latte and go on our day as if things really for us aren't changed and that's what really matters. And I'm submitting to you that right now that the weight of our generation's crisis, the, the, the problem that we're facing together as a culture is fundamentally a crisis of promise. Our culture does not understand promise. We don't understand how promise works. We don't understand why God gives promises, and we don't understand how to claim those promises. And as a result, we can't even conceive of a future where justice and righteousness and peace actually characterize our lives. All that there is right now is reaction and, and <clears throat> anger and fear. Even in the midst of all of this, we have to understand <coughs> the people that are most vulnerable to the coronavirus right now are those that are in that older demographic, 60, 70, 80 years old. But studies have shown, even this week, that those that are most terrified by the coronavirus are those that are under 30 years old. And so we've got this 
uh, challenge of just being able to interpret basic data and information and dynamics that are going on. Why? Because we don't understand the nature of promise. Even more, we have to realize that right now, because of all of these factors that are converging, and we've got uh, people who are absolutely frightened of coronavirus that are 18, 25, uh, people who are older who maybe aren't so scared, we have to realize that when this is all over, whatever that means, we're still going to be in the same place because we still have the same hearts that are being displayed through uh, these horrible acts of racism and murder. And, and now people are literally destroying their own cities where they live, looting, terrifying. Why? Because their hearts are in need of a promise and they fail to understand that that promise is available in the person of Jesus. The church's hour is before us. The church's season is before us. The country's unraveling, our culture's unraveling, and it needs a church who's convinced and convicted that God's promises are real. Now, when you peel back the veneer of what's happening right now in the Treasure Valley, in the city of Meridian, you peel back the veneer, what we'll find is the same heart problems that are present in other places are still present here. We have a culture that in many ways keeps those darknesses and evil in check under a religious veneer, but it doesn't mean they're not here. And what we have to do as the church of God, the people of God, is to be able to step into the places of darkness that are currently covered by a veneer so that people can get free. The hour of the church is not just right now in the world, not just in America, so too it is here where we live. So we want to look at what the Bible says about promise and what God wants to do through his promises. In Genesis chapter 3, we've been drawing from here each week to understand how we got where we are. In Genesis chapter 3, we know this, that the indwelling spirit was the life that sustained Adam and Eve. God did two things when he breathed life into Adam and Eve. And if you notice in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7... Notice what it says. God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living soul. So I want you to grasp the, the, the significance of this. God not only dwelt on the earth without any barrier between him and humanity, so the presence of God saturated everything, but catch this, the presence of God filled humanity Humans were the temple of God, the dwelling place of God on the earth, and God literally merged dirt and spirit, animated it, so we carried the image of God. The indwelling spirit was the sustaining life for abundance and eternity. Now, when sin entered, I want you to notice the significance in chapter 3, what happens. Verse 19, God is speaking the curse of death over Adam and Eve. Notice what it says in verse 19, by the sweat of your face, you're going to eat bread, return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you will return. 
Let's catch the significance of this. When the Spirit of God departs humanity, we return to the inanimate source of our creation. Literally, we become more and more like the source from which we were taken, the dirt. We become more and more made in the image of creation, catch this, rather than the creator. Increasingly, as death has characterized the generations of humanity, we have not displayed the glory of our intention, which is what Romans 3.23 says, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have not carried the glory of God, the love of God, the power of God, the beauty of God, the wisdom of God. We've not carried all that. Instead, we become increasingly more and more like the dirt. We become more and more molded in the image of creation, worshiped creation, rather than the creator. And so even though we have this physical life that Psalm 90 says lasts 70, and if we're lucky, 80 years, we are unable to live an abundant and eternal life. And more than this, what we multiply ultimately diminishes into death. And so as Adam lived then out of this mistrust and disobedience and death, as that's happening, what does God do? God gives hope. When humans ran from God and were cursed by death to literally go back into the soil, the ground from which they came to carry the image of creation rather than the creator, what does God do? God makes a promise. Notice what he says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He's speaking to Eve, excuse me, speaking to the serpent, the devil, the one who came to destroy and to steal and to kill. Look what he says. He says to the devil, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So here's what God says to the devil. He says, there's going to be perpetual warfare between the seed of Eve or humanity and the seed of the devil, literally what the devil would multiply on the earth. There's going to be warfare between humanity. But what's interesting is here, it's not just offspring, plural, but when it shifts in verse 15 to he will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, it moves from collective to individual. It moves from plural to singular, he. And so there was this anticipation from the beginning that there would be one who would come and destroy the power of the devil, crush the head of the devil, and what it would take was that the one who was crushing it would bruise his heel. He would be wounded in his ministry of rescuing humanity from the clutches of the devil. And what we know is this, humankind has been in warfare with sin and death from this time forward. We are now, and God, to remedy that warfare, makes a promise that the head of the devil will be crushed by one of Eve's children, singular, an individual, one who had the authority and power to destroy the work of the devil, who himself would be injured in doing so. And so we want to grasp the significance all through the scripture, this idea of promise. I want you to catch me, catch, 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 catch the sense of what the scripture is saying. 
all through the Bible, promise is made with the hope that life will overcome death. We have multiple images of this. In one case, a man named Abraham is called to sacrifice his son. And what happens? God sends a substitute. And it tells us in Hebrews that literally Abraham received his son figuratively back to life. In other words, Isaac, Abraham's son, shows us that resurrection is the way through to the promise of God. When Israel leaves Egypt, they go through the, De the Red Sea. This is a picture in the scripture of them literally going down into the grave and coming back up out of the grave into a new life where they have the hope of promise. All through the scripture, this idea that death will be overcome by life, and that's going to come through the power of resurrection and the promise that God gives to make that happen. All through the scripture, it's there. Psalm 16, we see that David is praying, you're not going to leave my soul in the grave, but you're going to resurrect me for in your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand, your pleasures forevermore. All of these themes come through the book of Isaiah. We see that this theme that God is literally going to raise children up out of the grave. All these themes converge in the person of Jesus. John chapter 11. Let's see how this works. John chapter 11. In this particular passage, Jesus and his disciples. Are in one location, and a family very dear to Jesus, living in a town called Bethany, two sisters and her brother, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, are together in this village, and Lazarus falls sick. Jesus is about two or three days away, travel by foot. He gets word that Lazarus, his family friend, very dear to Jesus, becomes sick, and that his sickness may lead to death. And when Jesus hears it, he says, this sickness is not unto death, notice, but it's for the glory of God, so that people would see the significance of who Jesus is. So Jesus doesn't leave where he's at, even though it's going to take some days to get there. And ultimately, Jesus travels back to Judea, excuse me, to um, Bethany, and by this time, Lazarus has died. Mary and Martha are overcome with grief. And they put him in the grave. Jesus didn't come. And by the time he arrives, Lazarus is in the grave for four days. And so at this point, Lazarus' body, physical body, is actually starting to decay. When Jesus finally comes into town, he meets Martha and he meets Mary, both of the sisters, two different exchanges. I want you to notice verse 21, Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. So she knew Jesus could raise the dead, excuse me, heal the sick. But Jesus wants to do more. He wants to say this sickness is not unto death, even though he's died. What's he up to? Martha says, but now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So somehow Martha's hoping against hope, overcome with grief, can't conceive of her brother ever living again. And Jesus says, your brother's going to rise again. Martha says, I know he's going to rise again in the resurrection and to the Jewish mind, into the mind of the scripture. That meant there's a time in the future when this is going to happen. And she, well, Jesus is 
she thinks is just trying to comfort her. Yep, someday he's going to be resurrected. And Jesus says this, verse 20, verse uh, 24. Excuse me, verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So Jesus puts out in front of Martha this promise that resurrection is not just some sort of an event, but resurrection is a person. Resurrection's contained in a person. And to be united with that person in faith is the promise, the hope that the resurrection that God's promised will take place through that person who is Jesus, the Messiah. Martha, of course, says, of course, I believe this, Lord. I believe that you're the Messiah, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. She still doesn't grasp, even though he's the Messiah, which in the Hebrew uh, concept is a king healer. I know you're the Messiah. I know you're going to raise the dead. I know that's true, but she's not grasping the significance of what Jesus is saying. And so what goes on? A couple of things you want to notice. Number one, in the face of Lazarus' death, Jesus says this sickness is not unto death, and yet he proclaims himself the one from whom resurrection life is going to come. Notice also, he then goes on and he raises Lazarus from the dead. He stands right outside the grave and he says, Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. And, and they roll the stone back from in front of the grave. And after four days of his body starting literally to decay and rot, Lazarus comes back to life and he walks outside. And when Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and life, he raises Lazarus to prove that he is the one who will raise the dead. And then this is what we're confronted with. As the reader, we have to ask ourselves a question. Do we believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Like Martha, do we look at Jesus and, and believe that somehow who he is and what he's going to do is going to raise us up to life? Well, Lazarus is the proof that Jesus can do that, but I want you to notice what happens in the rest of the text. Notice, jump down to verse 45. Look what it says. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, trusted in Jesus, that he was the Messiah. And some of those people went to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and the chief priests, and they told them what he'd done. And all these religious leaders gathered together in a council, and they're saying, what are we going to do? This man is performing many signs. So they acknowledged that Jesus was doing miracles. They, they knew that Jesus was doing things that no one could explain. And verse 48, if we go on like this, everyone will trust in him, and the Romans will take away both our place and our nation. So they're worried about uh, the Romans uh, coming in and destroying their country, they're all going to believe in him. He's going to be a king that's compared to Caesar. What are we going to do? They see this as a political crisis rather than realizing the very Messiah that they've been waiting for has arrived. And rather than giving their allegiance to him, they're more worried about trying to retain the scraps of power that they have under the Roman Empire. But Caiaphas, the high priest, notice what it says in verse 49. He was the high priest and said, you don't know anything. 
Verse 50, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And it goes on to say that he did not say this of his own will, but the high priest through the power of the spirit coming on him, not even knowing it prophesied the death of Jesus. Let's catch where we're at right now. Lazarus dies. Jesus says his illness is not to death. He arrives in Bethany, raises Lazarus from the dead after saying to Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. He validates that he's the resurrection and the life. The religious leaders are confused and angry and threatened. And so they essentially set up a plan to kill Jesus, one for the nation. And the high priest, it's recorded in the scripture, prophesies, literally speaks the word of the Lord without even knowing it. Now, one more scene from this text so we can grasp the significance of all this going on here for resurrection. Immediately after this, in John chapter 12, Jesus comes into Jerusalem a week before his crucifixion. And we call it the triumphal entry. So there's all these people around thinking Jesus is the Messiah. He's going to destroy the Roman Empire. He's going to be the king over all the Jewish people. We're going to have our nation back. And so they're out there shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, the king has arrived. And they're waving palm branches and they're laying their coats out on the street and they're fulfilling this prophecy that came from the minor prophets that Jesus would come into Jerusalem and he would be sitting on a donkey. And that was the sign that was prophesied would happen to the king of the Jews. He would come in and everybody would receive him. And so all these people are thinking, here he is, the king. He's coming in. He's the one that we've been waiting for. Notice though what it says in verse 20. This is a week before Passover and it's a week before uh, Jesus' crucifixion. There were people who are coming to worship in Jerusalem. The town is getting, the city is getting filled with people, thousands of people coming in and there's some non-Jewish believers in God who want to see Jesus. And Jesus says this, notice what he says. Verse 24. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bear much, bears much fruit. Not only did the high priest prophesy of Jesus' death, but Jesus himself knew that his road was death. And so here we have Putting together where we started with Adam and Eve, here's the picture. God says to Eve, you're going to have a son who's going to destroy the power of the devil and death. And in doing so, his heel's going to be bruised. He's going to be injured in this. Then we have all these illustrations throughout the text that speak of resurrection as the gateway into life. Jesus comes and raises Lazarus from the dead. And as he does, he's saying, I'm the resurrection and life. But what the religious leaders and Jesus tell us is that Jesus himself would die, enter into death, so that we could be raised. Notice he not only affirms his death, but he does this. In his mercy and his love, he dies for those who hate him so that they would be restored. Do you catch the significance of the love of God here? He sends his only son into the world for the express purpose of dying, the one, his heel would be bruised. He will be injured, if you will. He dies so that the world might live and Jesus enters death. He's crucified. Horrible, horrific process of destroying someone's body. Ends up nailed to a crucifixion stake. 
And in that death, he takes on all the death that every single one of us have deserves. He embodied that death and all that it meant. And then he was raised from the grave because death could not hold him because he never sinned. And so Jesus literally goes through the exact process that he promises to us. He's going to enter into death, destroy the power of death, and then come up from the grave. And it's in that he says to us, I will break the power of death and the devil. It no longer has hold on humanity. So here we have the fulfillment of E's promise. When Jesus comes up from the grave, death no longer has power over him. And the new creation that God has in mind is been inaugurated in Jesus and now here we are looking at him in his resurrection saying, oh, he broke the power of death. That can be true for me too. And so here we come now to think about where we're sitting today and why the world needs the promise of hope and resurrection. Jesus in John 11 promises resurrection to his followers to trust that Jesus broke death's power. Now listen, to trust that Jesus is who he said that he is is to trust that he broke death's power and then we are now called to live under the reign of his indestructible, abundant and eternal life. We are no longer called to live in the brokenness of hopelessness, but rather the promise of hope through a new life. We are given a deposit of the life of God to live fearlessly in the vision of eternal life. And this is what the world is missing. They're fighting for scraps in this life. They're going to return to the dirt, literally taking, believing somehow that creation, that means government, that means politics, that means business and money, that means medicine, that somehow these created things are our redemption. And what the world actually needs to know is that nothing created can redeem us. If we're going to look to creation as our source, we're just going to return back to the dirt. But God is calling us forward to say, no, I want to restore the Holy Spirit to you so that your future is not in the grave, in the dirt. Rather, your future is in my presence like you were created to be, which is why after Jesus is resurrected, we see what happens in Acts 2 happen for a the specific purpose that the beginning of the church is about the resurrection of Jesus and what's being birthed in the world. Notice in Acts chapter 2. Here the disciples receive the Holy Spirit. And this is this is literally what it means. The Holy Spirit is a life-giving agency of God's abundant and eternal life and wherever the Holy Spirit is there is life. When the Holy Spirit dwells in me, I have eternal life dwelling in me. When the Holy Spirit dwells among the people of God, we have life dwelling in our midst. And God is literally building us together as living stones to embody his presence on earth so that wherever we are, that's where heaven and earth are meeting. Healing comes. Blind eyes are opened. The deaf hear. The lame walk. The dead rise. It's where the people of God are that the presence of God is restoring creation, literally going out like a river, filling all of the world. That's what God is doing when he gives his spirit 
in Acts chapter 2 to the people of God. Now, I want you to notice the flow of thought in Acts chapter 2. The 120 disciples that are in an upper room receive the Spirit. They start speaking in languages that they don't know. They gather this crowd at the southern steps of the temple. So they have this crowd of thousands, and Peter starts standing up and preaching to this crowd of thousands of people. And what he tells them is fundamentally this, and we have to summarize for the sake of time. In verse 22, he says this, Jesus' miracles prove that he was sent by God. We know he was God's messenger. But there are other people in history that did miracles, and as a result, that's not enough. But we know that the Messiah did miracles. Number two, you see this in verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So the second thing that we notice is this. Jesus died according to God's plan at the hand of both Jews and Gentiles. All people are guilty of giving Jesus over to the authorities that killed him. Number three, verse 24 through 36. It's a long discussion on the part of Peter, but I'm going to summarize it for you. Jesus is the King Messiah because God promised a thousand years before he came to earth that one of David's sons would reign on his throne forever. And to get there, he would pass through death and be resurrected. So what Peter says is Jesus is the only one in history who's not only came authorized by God, was killed the way God said he would be killed, but now he went into the grave and came up from the grave the way God said he must be the king who is now going to reign eternally over all of creation to restore creation to everything God had ever intended it to. And so Peter's making this argument to these people on this day to say the Messiah's arrived, but he had to pass through death to destroy it because he's not only a healing king, but he's a warrior king who will do what God promised Eve's son would do, kill the serpent, destroy it, crush its head. And Jesus experienced bruising of his heel as he went into the grave and comes up. And now he says, Peter says, he's the king who reigns over all. What does he say he's going to do? Notice verse 33. Now he's exalted to the right hand of God. And he received from the father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. In other words, the phenomena of the 120 disciples was the promise that God not only raised Jesus from the dead, but he gave his spirit and were restoring his presence on earth among his people so that all of creation could be restored by the reigning king and the king's people. That's us. We are those who are called to be filled with the Spirit. Why? Because we have to live that there's a greater promise, a hope that we will be raised from the dead because here's the bottom line. You will never live fearlessly and courageously in this world unless you know death has no hold over you. And the problem is this, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Here, here's, our, here's our dilemma. We must grasp the significance of the Holy Spirit in us because if we don't, we live in the fear of death. That doesn't demonstrate to people that Jesus has been raised. Our fear of man, of death, proves that the Messiah who claims 
uh, has claim on our life is not in us vibrantly by the power of the Holy Spirit. We need encounter with a promise of resurrection to define our life by our destiny, not by the dirt. And as a result, 1 Peter 1.3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. Look at this. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We now have a hope, a hope that's alive that cannot be destroyed. We live in the hope, what? All through the New Testament scriptures, hope speaks of the resurrection of the dead. If my life is promised to me, I don't have to fear the death of what creation and creative forces will do to me. I don't have to fear that. I no longer have to fear death because I have a hope that transcends what's happening. The problem with people who are looting right now is they don't have any promise of hope. They're so, all they're doing is they're lashing out and they're angry, understandably so, in many ways. They're angry. Why? Because they have no hope. The reason that a police officer would kill a man who's handcuffed and literally destroy his life by putting his knee on his neck. Why? Because he has no hope that his life actually means anything. When we're looking right now at the world falling apart, people are longing for hope. And the hope isn't that their life is going to get better. Their hope is somehow that there's something beyond this broken life, that there, there is a kind of life that cannot be described or contained or experienced by anything creation has to offer. It's a kind of life that can only be encountered by something outside of creation. And that's what Jesus does. He comes outside, from outside creation and he destroys the power of death fulfills the promise to Eve, and now we have this Messiah who reigns in heaven, who's inviting us to believe that he is the resurrection and life, and just as Lazarus was raised from the grave, so we will be raised from the grave not having a fear of death. God's inviting us to begin living this way, to be able to take the resurrection and the hope that it brings to those who are around us. Listen, we don't have to live in the fear of death. And what we take that to mean is this. When I'm on my deathbed, I'm not afraid to close my eyes and not wake up. As true as that is, that's not all it's talking about, for sure. But how about the many little deaths of naming the name of Jesus in a culture that's hostile to him? How about the many deaths of pursuing the will of God, despite the fact that there are people around you who aren't pursuing the will of God? How about the many deaths of God calling us to pray for the sick and the blind and the lame, to proclaim the gospel and the prophetic words to people who are lost and broken, who might reject us. In other words, the fear of death is not just the fear of dying. The fear of death is the fear of us being rejected. But the invitation to, this, to bring the promise of hope into the world is based on Jesus' example. He said, if a seed does not fall, if it will fall to the ground, if it does not die, it will not produce fruit. And then he goes on to say, if anyone will follow me, he must be where I am. The invitation to be a bearer of resurrection is one who's willing to go to the places where death now exists. And just as Jesus was rejected to be rejected, and to bring a kind of love that will overcome that rejection. It will be a kind of love where people love darkness rather than light, and we go into there anyway. Why? That's where resurrection needs to invade. We, you understand, 
Not only do not fear death, we do not fear stepping into the places where death exists because we do not count our lives uh, ultimately in the end as worth anything except what glory it will bring to Jesus, which is why Paul says in Romans chapter 8, he says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? No. And all those things were conquerors. Why? Because those are all forms of death. But in Jesus, death has been conquered. And we know that because he loves us, that neither death nor life, angels or rulers, things present nor things to come, nor powers, height nor depth, anything in all of creation, there it is. Nothing that comes from the dirt, nothing in creation can rob us of eternal life. And therefore, we do not live with fear. We are people who bring the resurrection to the places where resurrection needs to invade. And in the same way, Jesus' love motivated him to willingly go to the cross, so as love willingly sends us to places where people need to die that others might live, which is why in Acts 2.38, Peter says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Look, this Jesus whom you've crucified, we crucified him, yet he loved us. We will go to places and to people who will give us many little deaths. We will die to our image. We will die to our reputation. We will die to our comforts. We will die to the things that the Lord has offered to us. Why? So that other people can encounter the power of the resurrection. That is the promise the world is desperately needing to hear. That's the promise that we bring into the world. I want to pray before we close because you have an opportunity to do this tomorrow. There are people in your life right now that need the power of hope. They need to know that hope is not just a better life, but it's a resurrection to the presence of God. You are commissioned by the Holy Spirit to be a bearer of eternal life. You can receive the Spirit to be one who carries eternal life to others. You have opportunity tomorrow to bring people with you who need to encounter Jesus. I'm going to pray that we are filled with the Spirit and that out of that we're motivated to love those who need Jesus. Father, we believe that you are a God who has raised your son and that you're going to raise us. We believe that you're a God who promises that our resurrection will come to pass and you give us the spirit to know that we have the down payment of our eternal life. In the name of Jesus, I pray that people who are listening to this are filled with the spirit of confidence and hope and conviction that the person of the Spirit is dwelling in them and that life is filling them and that there is hope to be had through that. Holy Spirit, we pray, fill your people. We invite you to speak to us, to empower us. In the name of your Son, Jesus, amen. God bless you today.